Amen. <laughs> I do have to admit, I, when he first started with the excuses about bathing, I'm going. Okay, now we're ready. So let me piggyback off of that then. Anybody a fan of puns? Yay, wow, it's like the, wow, it's the most excited I've seen some of y'all in a while. <laughs> if you don't know, especially you young ones, a pun is when you use a word that means one thing, but it can be taken to mean something else. The official definition of a pun Oxford Dictionary is, quote, a joke exploiting the different possible meanings of a word or the fact that there are words which sound alike but have different meanings. Okay, it's kind of a complicated explanation. Let me give you some examples. Here you go, you ready? A good pun is its own reword. Oh, moans, I got moans quickly there. Wow. Okay, here, here you go, here you go. I bet the butcher the other day that he couldn't reach the meat that was on the top shelf. He refused to take the bet, saying that the stakes were too high. I like that one. Here's a good one, too. Corduroy pillows are making headlines. Did you hear about the optometrist who fell into a lens grinder and made a spectacle of himself? Three more. I had to cut it off. I wanted like 12 more. Biologists have recently produced immortal frogs by removing their vocal cords. They can't croak. The best way to communicate with a fish? Drop them a line. Last one. The marine biology seminars weren't for entertainment, but were created for educational purposes. There we go. <laughs> so those are all puns, and whether you like them or not, they're still puns, so I'll stop now. Of course, now the question is, why would I ask that question at the start of this message? Well, I'm going to be real honest with you. I've had a really rough time this week with the text for today. I mean, I'm just going to be straight up honest with you. I love Matthew 13. I've told you all that, okay? Um, And I have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with what does this text mean? Um, and, And truthfully, as I've wrestled with it, I can see a couple of different possible meanings, And I saw a quote from John Owen this week that said this, and it's funny that I saw it this week. Not funny. Um, If the scripture has more than one meaning, it has no meaning at all. And I agree with that 100%. The point there is that the speakers and the writers of the scriptures, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, meant one thing when they spoke or wrote. And what they meant is the goal of studying, interpreting, and explaining the biblical texts. Now, people have always and will always misunderstand things that other people say. Quotes can be taken out of context, words can be misconstrued, and people can even purposefully twist things that are said for their own benefit or for the harm of others. But... And this is that's a big word there. We dare not play fast and loose with saying what a biblical text means. It means one thing. And our goal is to find that one meaning, figure out what the Holy Spirit would have us to do with that meaning in our day and time. We extract the timeless truth from the singular meaning and work to live it out in our lives. In a verse that we'll quote later, we're not there yet, Dave, so you don't have to go here. Peter says it this way in his second letter, 2 Peter 1, 19-21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture 
comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now with all that being said, the only real option I have to present this week is to present the remainder of the parables. Okay, the the other five. We've gone over two. And then after we go over them, I want to give you two options. Okay? And let you decide what you think is right. And fire me. I don't know. I don't know what to say. You know, <laughs> I'm just being honest and up, up front with you. And because I, I hate, I hate to do that. I really do. Um, I, I know when we when we got to the end of Romans seven, and it's saying, "Oh wretched man that I am." The question is, was Paul talking about himself after conversion or pre conversion? And good godly scholars will teach it both ways. Um, And I taught that from one specific perspective. I believe that was redeemed Paul saying he still wrestles with sin in his flesh. But good godly people teach it the other way. Okay? What I didn't want to do was stand up here today and say, thus saith the Lord when, I don't know. Okay? Um, And I, I, I wrestled with how many parables to share, to cover this week, where to stop, what to cover. And all of that is determined by which direction you take the meaning of these parables. And since I can't authoritatively say, thus saith the Lord from this passage, I'll tell you these two interpretations. I'll tell you which one I think is right. But I will by no means impose that on you as the only option. Okay, so we're clear. So with that in mind, let's read what ended up being today's passage. We're reading Matthew 13, 31 through 33, and 44 through 52. So if you would please stand as we read this publicly. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Then the verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let's pray. God, our prayer this morning is what we sang there at the end of our music time. Speak. Speak, O Lord, and reveal to us who you are and what you want for us, these these truths that have remained unchanged since the dawn of time, these are not truths that are elusive to you, and your Spirit has the ability to teach them to us. But we struggle. So help us this morning, God, to listen attentively, help us to make good decisions, and help us to live differently because of what you say. Speak, O Lord, until your church is built. And the earth is filled with your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we usually should, uh, we're going to review where we've been and what we've covered in the previous weeks to get the setting for these verses that we read this morning. So back in chapters 11 and 12, Jesus has been rejected pretty much outright by the Jewish religious establishment. And not only viewed... Not as the Messiah that he was, but even said to be operating in the power of Satan himself in the miraculous deeds that he's done. And as a result of this rejection by the Jewish establishment, Jesus has pronounced woes 
on those who did not believe him and has commenced teaching in parables to hide truth from those who won't believe him and to reveal truth to those who had ears to hear what he was saying. In his parables, he's teaching about what? Kingdom of heaven. And we said that kingdom of heaven represents the period of time between his earthly ministry there at the time of Matthew from there until his second coming when he'll come in glory and power and full revelation of who he is as king of kings and lord of lords. So in this kingdom of the heavens, in this in-between time, Jesus' kingdom is in an already but not yet state. Jesus is firmly in control of all things, but there are, it seems like there's appearances of the enemy who is reacting to the activity of the king and his kingdom on the earth in this in-between time. So Jesus is inaugurating the earthly kingdom, but it's not come in its fullness, and the enemy is responding, reacting to that, and doing things to try to hinder or to harm this kingdom. And here's what is, to me, the main issue in determining what these parables really mean. Okay, this is what it boils down to. The question is, is Jesus teaching his disciples that the kingdom will be victorious in this in-between time, emphasizing the victory aspect? Or is he warning that things will look like they're really bad, but are really in his control and will be sorted out in the end regardless of what they look like now? And that's a very subtle difference. But it is the hinge that the interpretive door swings on, in my estimation. Is Jesus trying to encourage them that the kingdom is going to be good and and, and wonderful? Or is he saying, it's going to be hard, it's going to be bad, but don't lose heart? Again, subtle difference, but it changes how we interpret these parables. So what we're going to do is look at both possibilities and how they play out through these parables. So back to Matthew 13, 31. I'm going to read, you're going to hear this this time and another time. So that's three times you're going to have heard this passage. And we're just going to treat it all together. Okay, We're not going to go break it down verse by verse because we've got to go through it twice. So <clears throat> starting back in 1331, he put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who in finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full... Men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so what we're going to do first is we're going to walk through this from the perspective of Jesus encouraging his disciples of how the kingdom will be productive, victorious, and overcome all resistance to it from the world and the devil which it will, okay? It definitely will do that. But is that the perspective that Jesus is telling these parables? So we're going to assume that here as we go through it this time. So he's told the parables of the soils and the wheat and the tares. Two, two parables, soils, wheat, and tares. Where we see Jesus sowing the word in the parable of the soils, and then in the parable of the wheat and tares, he sows his children in a field. And in the first parable of the soils, the enemy comes and plucks away some of the seed. And some of the seed is not fruitful because it gets choked out by stony ground or thorns. And then in the second parable, we see the enemy planting his children in Jesus' field, where Jesus had planted his children. Okay? Confused yet? Good. Now, if these parables are to show victory, Jesus tells the next parable where the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. It's the smallest of seeds, but grows into a plant so large that the birds of the air come and make their home in its branches. So this would show the small beginning of the kingdom. As small as 12 men. Actually 11, because one of these guys is a traitor, and Jesus knew that. But this thing starts small, and it grows so large 
that all kinds can come and find a home in that bush, in that tree. Mustard seed really doesn't produce a tree, but he's saying the, the bush, the mustard bush gets so big it looks like a tree. So it's like gone from this tiny seed to this unnaturally large thing. Okay? Which is sounds good, right? Starts real tiny, gets real big. Then he tells another parable where the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till all was leavened. Now in that day and time, much like people still do today, when bread was being made, its maker would pinch off a piece of an old loaf of bread and that little piece would be enough to cause the new dough to rise. They just drop it in there and the, the yeast or uh, leaven would infect all of it. It's, and note that three measures of flour, that's a lot of flour. Okay, I didn't convert it into common day, but, but all the teaching, all the research, all the commentators say that's a lot of flour. And so they pinch off this little piece of the old bread, drop it in there, and that would, while that would make a lot of bread, and they would make a lot of bread because they ate a lot of bread and they had big families and bread was durable and would last long <clears throat> and it would serve uh, to feed them for a long time. And just a little bit of leaven, even... In that, in that already made piece of bread, that little bit of leaven, a small piece off the old loaf, was enough to leaven the whole batch of new dough. And this would speak again to the small beginnings of this kingdom and the large task before it. And just a little bit was enough to do the job. The whole three measures was leavened. Encouraging, right? No? So the mustard seed and the leaven are kind of like parallel stories to show the sufficiency of the small start of the kingdom to affect and infect the whole world. And then Jesus takes a new direction of sorts in verse 44. By saying the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Now it was common in those days for people to bury their large amounts of wealth in a place that only they knew. There weren't banks, there weren't commerce centers, so there wasn't really safe places to keep their money. So they'd bury it. It was the safest way they knew. And sometimes people would die. Sometimes people would forget, which I don't, you know, the treasure, I don't know. Um, they'd move, maybe they'd leave their hidden treasure in that field, and then somebody else would find it. And the buried treasure was legally considered part of the field. So if someone bought the field, they would rightly and lawfully own the treasure buried there. So the vein of thought here is that the kingdom is found and the person that finds it is so excited that he or she divests themselves of all else to properly own the treasure of the kingdom. It's worth it. And then some, right? In his joy, he sells all that he has to buy it. When we truly find the kingdom, or maybe when the kingdom finds us, we joyfully renounce all that we had previously and rid ourselves of it in order to enjoy the kingdom. And this thought pattern is echoed in the next parable where the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls who, when he finds that one perfect pearl, the pearl of great value, sells all that he has and buys that one pearl. Again, the kingdom elicits so much joy in someone who finds it that they sell all that they have just so they can have that which they value above all else, this pearl that they've always looked for. All the struggle and battle with seeds and weeds and leaven and such pays off. And the one in the kingdom is full of joy to be there. And then Jesus wraps it all up by telling the parable of the dragnet, which says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here, the good and the bad, the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one are represented by, what, fish. And the dragnet pulls them all in at the end, pulls them ashore, and then the good and bad are sorted out, with good ones being kept and bad ones thrown and burned, thrown away and burned, much like what we saw with the tares. The angels will sort out the good from the bad and burn the bad in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, in other words, hell. And the encouragement here is that all will be sorted out in the end. And we can trust that even as we see the kingdom growing, leavening the world, and we give all we have to have the full joy of that kingdom even now. Makes sense, right? Again, I'm not trying to trick you here. I, I mean, I just, that just makes sense. This is the interpretation that is common. 
that is pretty widely accepted. Um, in my prep work, I listen to John MacArthur, I listen to R.C. Sproul, I read other commentators, and this is what they say. Okay? Now, let's explore the other option, which, again, is a little more obscure. But let's look at the option that Jesus is warning his disciples that the kingdom will look like the bad is winning. Okay? That he's preparing for that. So, back to the beginning. 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The kingdom of heaven, verse 44, is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So keep in mind that Jesus is covering the full time frame from him sowing the word till the end of the age. Okay, so that's the kingdom of the heavens. And in this interpretive path... We're going, to, we're going to assume that Jesus is saying things are going to be hard. Let me tell you what they're going to look like. Okay, so that's the path we're going down here. From the time he starts sowing the word until the angels come and sort everything out in that last day. So here, the mustard seed, the tiniest of field seed, grows unnaturally to the point that birds live in its branches. Well, go back to the parable of the soils. Who was eating the seed that came on the path? The birds. And the bird represented the devil. Okay? So here, this mustard seed grows up into this big giant bush, really tree-looking thing, to the point that birds live in its branches. So if birds are living in the branches and birds represent the evil one, the question is, does it still represent the evil one in this parable? If it does, that's not good, right? Anybody want birds living in their garden? You ever seen a scarecrow? What's the point of a scarecrow? Keep the birds out because birds damage gardens, right? Birds at home in a garden is not good. So Jesus is warning that it will look bleak in this in-between kingdom to the point that the birds are making their home in this kingdom. In the midst of this kingdom. And then the leaven. Here, a woman hides leaven in three measures of meal and the whole bunch of it gets leavened. So, commonly, I won't say exclusively, leaven in the Bible is used to represent what? Sin. Sin. Now again, not exclusively. We don't want to draw that conclusion. So, what if this is sin? Infesting the world... And becoming pervasive to the point that it looks like the sin is winning. In the kingdom, the kingdom is established, the kingdom is happening, but on the outside, I mean, again, go out there. Does it look like the kingdom of God is winning? If you watch the news and say yes, you're not watching the news. Because it doesn't look like it. doesn't mean it's not. And again, Jesus is saying, hey, be ready because appearances are going to be this. In this interpretive path, okay? So, a woman hides this leaven. Now, note the difference in sexes here. A woman hid the leaven. The sower of the good seed and the sower of the wheat in the previous parables was a man. Is that significant? I don't know. In this interpretive path, some people would say that it is significant. Now, there's a lot to explore there. But suffice it to say that a woman is not a man. Amen? And that that could mean something to affect that this woman is not God. Something to the effect that this woman is not God who's sowing this leaven. 
And if they're sowing sin, they're definitely not God, right? In the end times, we see in Revelation references to the woman Babylon the Great, the great harlot of the earth. She leads astray and pollutes the whole earth with her harlotries, is what Revelation says. Could this be a reference to that? Some would say yes. And then in verse 44, with the change in focus to the treasure in the field, the take would be that Jesus is the man that finds the treasure in the field. His church in the midst of the world. And for joy, sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, does he want the field? He wants the treasure. Okay? And is that not exactly what Jesus did? Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, 8, 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave all that he had, emptied himself in order to purchase his bride, his treasure, the church, the kingdom of the heavens, and did it, Hebrews 12.2 says, for the joy set before him. Which is exactly the picture we see in this parable. For the joy, he, he gets rid of everything he has so that he could have the treasure. And Jesus, for the joy set before him, made himself poor, gave away all that he had, laid his very life down in order to purchase the treasure. It just so happened to be in the world. And what does this look like? It looks like a merchant as well seeking fine pearls. And when he finds the one, the one of great value, that merchant sells all that he has and buys the pearl. Now, just here's a side note. How are pearls made? Pearls are formed when an oyster gets a grain of sand or some other irritant lodged inside its shell. To deal, instead of just spitting it out, because I don't guess they can, I don't know how that works, but it begins secreting a substance that will coat the foreign object with many layers of beautiful, mostly white covering. The end result is a pearl. When the oyster was irritated or acted against from the outside, it begins to give something of itself to deal with the problem. Jesus shows us that this is exactly what he does. When we are redeemed, we are placed in Christ. In order to deal with us, he covers us with himself, making a beautiful, priceless pearl out of what was once just a grain of sand or piece of dust. Scripture says he knows our frame that we are but dust. That's a little different take. So you see all the bad, you see, you see the, the field of the world being infected with sin, but Jesus sees something precious that he wants, so he, he buys the whole field so that he can have the treasure. The irritant is placed in Christ, and he secretes himself to cover that irritant so that it becomes something beautiful. And then Jesus assures his men in the same way that we looked at the other interpretive path, the dragnet will be cast as angels will sort out the good from the bad. So while it looked like things were plagued with birds and leaven and bad fish, he would himself purchase his church, cover her with his own life, and secure them in the end. And the bad, the birds, the weeds, the leaven, the fish would be properly cast into hell justly and finally. So all that time of appearing dominant, their doom is sure. Okay? And then moving past the parables, Jesus says in verse 51 to his disciples, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. Did they? I don't know. They said they did. He asked them if they understood what he said in telling these parables, and they said yes. Now the question is, do we? I I don't. (laughs) Let me tell you, I favor the second interpretation. That's, that's my leaning. But I can't refute the first interpretation. It, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, but I just, one of my problems is I don't buy the kingdom. That's one of my problems. I don't purchase the kingdom. The kingdom was purchased for me. Okay? And I believe, I believe my opinion, which I try not to voice up here much at all, My opinion is that Jesus is warning these guys, it's going to get tough. And it's going to look like things are out of control, but I want you to know they're not. That's my take. Again, I'm not going to foist that on you and say, you must believe like me. But he comes to the end here and he asks them, do they understand? They say, yes. He asks me and I go, I think maybe. 
think. Because either way, okay, whichever way Jesus meant these parables, we can see that the kingdom is going to undergo trials and battles and it will grow, it will be sustained, it will flourish even, even though we may not see it that way. And all will be made right in the end with God's children flourishing in his kingdom for eternity while the unjust and unrighteous will be eternally punished in a fiery hell. That is going to happen regardless of what things look like in the in-between time. So we do understand these things, just maybe not all these things. That's what I would say for myself. And then there's the last verse, verse 52. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And I love this. So he had asked them if they understood all that he had taught them in the parables. We saw and heard him explain two of them. So actually three of them. The dragnet, I think, is really pretty much explained. Um, So we know that he was guiding them in whether they understood it or not. And so now, working from a new perspective for them, with new information about how things will go in the future, he says that they, these disciples, are uniquely trained to operate from both the old and the new in what they know. He says they are scribes who have been trained for the kingdom of heaven. This mystery, formerly unknown, is now known to them. And with their knowledge of the Old Testament covenants and prophecies, growing up good Jewish boys and men, and with their knowledge of this mystery kingdom, they're well equipped to share these treasures, the old ones and the new ones, working together with with the world where this kingdom of the heavens would be operating in the coming generations. They are uniquely gifted. They are uniquely taught like no one ever before them. The prophets had part of the picture. Now the disciples, apostles, they've got the full picture. These disciples brought up as faithful Jewish worshipers of Yahweh would now have gospel vision to add to the former things. They would now have the whole picture and would be entrusted to share that whole picture in a way that was transferable to the ends of the earth until the end of time. Until this kingdom was set up perfectly and finally by the king himself, it was their teachings, it was their treasure that we still teach and preach and proclaim today, the old and the new. And we're all the better for it. They were trained, they were ready, they understood, and they would be faithful. They were faithful, and praise God for that. So the question is, where do we fit in this? Will we be faithful? Have we understood all these things? So that takes us to application. And I know you're probably like, that, that, you didn't help me a bit right there, okay? <laughs> Tough. We still, gotta inter- we still have to apply this. So I've got three eyes. Actually, I've got two eyes, three eyes. So. <clears throat> Interpretation, invaluable, and indestructible. Interpretation, invaluable, indestructible. First is Interpretation. He asked them the question, have you understood all of these things? Now let me ask you something. Every time you read the Bible, every time you meditate on the scriptures, every time you study, do you understand everything? No. And what I would say, first and foremost, in this application point is, don't be discouraged if you don't understand some things in the Bible. I'd love to stand up here every week and just authoritatively say the Spirit of God means this. And I can't. I just can't. Because even the scriptures that we have are God talking to us, Don says all the time, in baby talk. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And He communicates to us in a way that we understand sometimes, most of the time. But we cannot say that we always understand everything in the scripture. Don't let that discourage you. Tim Keller said the gospel has been described as a pool in which a toddler can wade and yet an elephant can swim. It is both simple enough to tell to a child and profound enough for the greatest minds to explore. Indeed, even angels never tire of looking into it. So with that being said, there's going to be some things you don't understand. Does that mean you should stop? Does that mean you should just write it off as one of those things that I don't understand? No, I'd say struggle with it. Wrestle with it. 
Go to the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit to open up your eyes so that you can see, open up your ears that you can hear, open up your heart that you can receive this word. And you also don't have to understand it perfectly for it to bear fruit in your life. So don't let that discourage you. Interpretation, we said earlier, is about seeking the singular meaning of the text. And all texts have a singular meaning. And then bring that timeless truth from when it was written, when it was spoken, into our time and apply that timeless truth in your life. That's how we interpret the Scripture. That's why we interpret the Scripture. We don't take a verse and plug it into our lives and say, okay, this means this because my life is going this way. That is eisegesis. And we don't even know eisegesis. We got, no, that's eisegesis. Do not let your life, your thoughts, your emotions press onto the Scripture a different meaning than what it means. Biblical interpretation is simple and difficult. Sometimes it's just unfolded for us and the Holy Spirit just really opens it up for us and we say, I get it. And sometimes we wrestle and wrestle and wrestle and go, I don't get it. I've wrestled with this text for 16, 17 years and have come down on both sides here and there every now and then. Uh, and still don't really know exactly. I just don't. Does that mean that I'm not never going to read it again? No. I'm going to struggle with it. Listen, we have 2,000 years of biblical teaching to pull from. We've got the church fathers. We've got the apostles. We've got writings and recordings. And we have more now than we've ever had. That can cause problems though. Because we hear so many voices. And they can't all be right. So be discerning and work hard, work hard in the power of the Spirit to understand the singular meaning of the text and how you should live differently as a result of seeing it. That's biblical interpretation. Back to what I I quoted at the beginning, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I do not care what the Bible means to you. And you should not care what the Bible means to me. What does the Bible mean? That's what we're after. And that's the good work of interpretation. And it is work. It is labor. And it is fruitful labor. So don't be afraid to wrestle with it. And don't just apply a verse here and there to your situation because that's not the way we're supposed to interpret Scripture. I'll leave that alone. We'll move on. Interpretation, then invaluable. Now this is really exciting to me. Invaluable means it cannot be accurately valued. An accurate value cannot be placed on something. It's worth more than we could ever know. That's what invaluable means. Regardless of how we take these parables, which path we take, which interpretive path we take, we see both sides of the coin as far as who or what is invaluable. First, the kingdom of heaven is invaluable. That doesn't mean it doesn't have value. It means we can't know its true value. It's too valuable to understand. In both the parable of the treasure in the field and in the parable of the pearl of great value, it was for joy that the person sold all that he had in order to purchase the field and the pearl. Everything they had was worthless compared to the kingdom. Now, I don't purchase the kingdom, but when I'm gifted the kingdom by Christ himself who purchased me with his body and his blood... Everything else pales in comparison. Paul said it this way, Philippians 3, this is a familiar passage, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For, this, for His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him. 
and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying knowing Christ is invaluable and that's what the message of the kingdom of heaven is all about. You can know Christ and when you want to know Christ everything else just fades away. Holds no value to it with the old song, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The kingdom of heaven is invaluable. And we see that in these parables clearly. Now, but not just the kingdom. Now listen to this. This is worth getting excited about. Anybody ever felt worthless? Trying to get out of bed this morning, I felt pretty worthless. I'm like, ugh. But not only is the kingdom invaluable, listen to this, so are its subjects. And that's us. Now be careful here. Jesus did not die for you because you were valuable. But when Jesus died for you, you became valuable. Let me explain what I mean here. Our worth is not in ourselves. We're an irritant at best. Jesus did not die for us because of our worth, but His death made us worthy. He has made us invaluable by giving us what? His very life. His very spirit. And He has given to us His very kingdom and loved us with a love that is greater than anything else we've ever known. And so His opinion of us, His love for us, makes us invaluable to Him. Now this is not about, I feel very worthy. That's not it at all. It's that you are very loved and you are valued to an invaluable status to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords because of what He has done. Listen to this, Ephesians 3, 7 through 13. There's a lot here. We're just going to pick one little thing out of it. Paul says to the Ephesians, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now listen to this. Listen to this. Paul talks about this mystery, this kingdom, this, all this stuff we've been talking about in Matthew 13. And if you look, this, is just, this just blows my brain up, okay? Go to verse 9. And to bring light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? Verse 10. So that through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You know what that means? That means that God Himself, by His plan, which was in place before the foundation of the world, God Himself holds up the church. And when He does and shows who we are, it shows His manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God says to these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, you want to see how wise I am? And he holds us up. This is how wise I am. I took a grain of sand and made a beautiful pearl out of it. And they go, you, God, are wise. As they look at us. Listen to me church. Because of the work of Christ. Because of the doing of Christ. You are invaluable. My worth is not in what I own. My worth is in the value that God himself has placed on me. By his doing. 
because of the great love with which he has loved us, because of his grace, I'm invaluable. We are invaluable. I hope that sits well with you. Interpretation, invaluable, and finally, indestructible. Regardless of which interpretive path we take from today's parables, we can clearly see that the kingdom of heaven cannot be destroyed. The kingdom of heaven cannot and will not fail. It may give appearances as if it's happening. Oh, what was it, 30 days ago we were going to World War III, right? The whole world was falling apart. We were about to go to war with Iran. Here we are. We still don't like them. They still don't like us. And stuff like this has been going on for 6,000 years. This is not your ultimate reality. The ultimate reality that you exist in as the church, as an individual believer and follower of Jesus, is that you are part of a kingdom that cannot be destroyed and cannot fail. And will not fail. We have read the end of the book. And it's good. It's good for him. It's good for us. Now, does that make us better than those who it's not good for? No, no, it does not. We're just recipients of grace. Peter called it an imperishable kingdom. But I want to read to you Hebrews 12, 18 through 29 to finish this morning. You, church, are part of an indestructible kingdom, so take heart. Don't let yourself be pushed and pulled and terrorized by everything that happens on the cable news networks and the radio shows. Just those things are passing and fleeting and they do not determine your ultimate destiny. Listen to this. This is what determines your ultimate destiny. This indestructible kingdom. This is 12 verses, so hold on. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them like in Moses' time. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth... Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, therefore, you want application? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I don't know which path you take, what words you use as puns, or whatever happens as you look at these parables and you try to interpret them and you try to find the one meaning. But I know this for sure. They should lead you to worship God with reverence and awe. Because this kingdom that we have inherited as a gift from Him cannot be shaken. Everything that can be will be shaken. And that's everything but this kingdom. When things start to move underneath your feet in your life, the kingdom can't be shaken. When you struggle with doubt and fear and worry and anxiety, this kingdom cannot be shaken and will not be shaken. And he will present you before his self, himself, blameless and without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it at the day of Christ Jesus. And he will hold you up. 
He will hold us up to show his wisdom to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And we will all bend the knee, bow the heart, and worship him for eternity. That's going to happen. Regardless of which interpretive path you take through these five parables. Let's pray. God, help us to be faithful interpreters of your word. Help us to know that your kingdom, your word, your people are all invaluable. Help us to know our worth, not being in what we own or what we have or even what we've done. Our worth is in Christ's pronouncement over us that we are his. And God, help us to know when we do doubt, when we do fear, that we are part of an indestructible kingdom. And one day, all hindrances and causes of sin will be removed from this kingdom and the righteous will shine in the kingdom of their Father. And that means us, if we, if we have placed our faith in the finished work of Christ. And God, if there be anybody here this morning who has not done that, who has not placed their faith in Jesus, who He is and what He's done, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, give them life. Give them the gift of faith so that they might call out to Him, knowing that they are sinners in need of a Savior and that they want to be part of the indestructible kingdom and not spend eternity in hell where the evil and the unrighteous will spend their eternity. God, by the power of your Spirit, help them to call out to Jesus and be made whole, be made well. Save them. It's like you saved us, God. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now, now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can. Then.